Thanks for dropping by and joining us. This is another of the weekly Dharma Punks New York Zoom classes. And we also have on Sundays, roughly once a month at Center Yoga in New York, in-person gatherings. And the next one will be the first Sunday of November, or the 6th. Uh, links to all the information on the dharmapunksnyc.com website, and as well as on the Facebook pages. Hopefully, if you're in the New York City region and you want to have a sense of community, you can stop by and join us. So, uh, yeah, welcome. And just reminding that every morning at 8 a.m., Kathy does the daily pause meditation, which can all the information, if you'd like to join, uh, is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website, too. I am a Buddhist pastor, and I don't charge for anything I do. Everything is provided entirely by your support. Uh, so if you'd like to help keep us, my work going, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC and the PayPal button and Patreon site is on the website. So thanks for that. So tonight we're going to be talking about impermanence, probably the foundation of the Buddhist teachings, the Dharma. It's the single observation from which pretty much all other insights blossomed and uh, the awareness of change as a constant in life pretty much was the undercurrent of so many of the Buddha's observations that uh, eventually led to a very distinctive spiritual practice. Now, at around the same time of the Buddha, some 2,500 years ago, a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, too, was very uh, aware of the omnipresent nature of ongoing change in all phenomena. And he famously said, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, nor is it the same man. The idea that um, if you look at the river, it might look like the same river, but if you actually pay attention to it, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's uh, filled with leaves and grass, sometimes it's muddy, sometimes it's got... Uh, uh, lots of um, currents in it, and sometimes it might be very still. So uh, the river is always changing, and so too are we, uh, even in very small increments of time. Our bodies are shifting, uh, the way we move, the way our uh, who even our sense of who we are is changing. So Anicca was the name of the Buddhist teaching or the word that was used for impermanence. And the basic, the basic foundational observation was the idea that all phenomena, 
especially phenomena that's made up of smaller parts, much like human beings, other people, other beings, um, all objects that we encounter are constantly either coming together or falling apart, breaking down to their constituent parts. Nothing stays the same, is solid, is predictable, is lasting. And the Buddha famously said in one of his most beautiful teachings in uh, shorter discourses, he says, so should you see all the world as like a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning on a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a dream. Uh, so this might sound on some level obvious that all things are undergoing constant change, some faster, you know, there are obviously butterflies and uh, other insects that live for a very short period of time versus uh, trees that can live for hundreds upon hundreds of years. But we do know cognitively that these um, are constantly undergoing some level of change. Even a tree is constantly either growing or shedding leaves, moving through the seasons. So too are all people, places, places in our lives. They can appear stable. We can take them for granted and often we don't see incremental change. To see ongoing change, we must look very, very closely, which is one of the goals of Buddhist practice. Or we can remove ourselves from a certain stimuli for a period so that the change becomes apparent. What does that mean? Well, suppose you have some friends that have a baby and then you don't see that baby for th three years and suddenly it's talking and walking around and moving you will see the cons you will see the sudden change but the parents who are with that baby every day day in and day out because the change is so incremental might not be aware of it at all so the only way very often to see uh, the change in much phenomenon is to either pay very close attention or, again, to uh, not pay attention at all, not see something for a, a significant period of time. And then when we re-encounter it, we might notice, ah, well, that person got significantly older than when I last saw them, or that child has grown up and has now become uh, a viable human being. So on one level, uh, we can see why change is not that easy to perceive, but even more so, human beings are uh, what is called a representational species. We have regions in our left um, temporal gyrus, namely Broca and Wernicke's regions, whose job it is to represent lived experience into very reductive categories. We see or meet someone or we go to some restaurant for the first time and we immediately 
my, will label the person or the place or the cuisine as good or bad, desirable, undesirable, uh, available, unavailable. And we label things as a way to stop paying attention to with to these people or places with any degree of detailed attention or focus labeling or what the buddha called sana or grasping distinguishing features is a process that all human beings do as a perceptual shortcut it allows us to uh, either ignore or respond in a very predictable way to repeating stimuli so that we don't each time we encounter someone have to figure out should we trust them or not trust them should we share our internal experience with them or not the first in the first few times we meet people we tend to label them and we respond subsequently to them as if they're not changing at all we simply follow those internal labels this actually has a whole host of neural underpinnings. One of the um, uh, important concepts of neuroscience is what's called sensory gating of the thalamus. Literally, the thalamus is like an executive secretary in the brain that filters out redundant or repetitive stimuli from reaching consciousness. Basically, the idea is, I know what this sound is, this clock ticking in the background or this sound of traffic happening or this aroma. It's no longer worthy of my attention. And because we label things and we no longer pay attention, we don't notice how much everything around us is undergoing constant change. So the Buddha, in one of the most important uh, teachings of the Dharma uh, in what's known as the Anatta Lakana Sutta instructs his followers to look very closely observing their internal experience. He had them first observe their body sensations, then their feelings, then their thoughts and emotions, their states of consciousness. And after each uh, observance he asked is are these experiences changing or are they staying the same and each time the practitioner says oh they're changing they're constantly changing everything is changing and what that revealed is that all of our moods all of our states of being are constantly shifting and very often shifting in a way that is utterly beyond our control. One moment we might be relaxed, feel very safe and calm, and then due to what's known as neuroceptive triggers, we might be switched into a very anxious state of mobilization, fight and flight, or we might go through what's called a dorsal dive and have plummeting moods and feel depressed. And the processes that shift our state of being are neuroceptive. They happen completely outside of consciousness and they can happen in ways that if we're not really paying attention very closely, we won't even notice. 
So what this means is that even things that activate pleasure in one moment over time might leave us disinterested very shortly afterwards. How many times do we go to a store and buy uh, a nice piece of shoes, clothing, go to an Apple store and, and, and fawn over a gadget. And then by the time we return home with it, it no longer seems so shiny, so attractive, so electric. And so the feelings and impressions that an object elicits can be um, changed very quickly. Songs, movies, destinations we enjoyed and loved at one point of our life may be extremely disappointing when we return to them even a few months later. Uh, even our beliefs, which provide meaning, can feel empty over time. The Buddha notes that amidst all of these changes that and instability, that life is, the fact that we can't rely on not only uh, people's moods can shift unpredictably, our own moods can shift, uh, restaurants that we loved can close in the blink of an eye, um, uh, places that are still open might change menus, etc. And amidst this ongoing instability, the Buddha notes that we crave which is tana and cling, which is upadana, to pleasurable experiences or daily rituals that we repeat every day to create the illusion, the false sense of stability and reliability in the world. We even cling to our views about the world and our views about ourselves for a sense of stability. I have certain views about who I am and certain views about um, the way the world works and politics. And according to the Dharma, the, uh, one of the underlying reasons I we have these views is to create a sense of predictability and reliability to experience. But as everything continuously shifts, it leads to frustration and powerlessness, and a sense of overwhelm. And this the Buddha called Dukkha Viparinama, the suffering of change, the suffering that comes from wanting people to be reliable, wanting places, wanting things, wanting ourselves, our own moods to be constant, and yet finding that they're always undergoing change. Think of how much life is lived under the motto, when I graduate, when I have a partner, when I have a child, then I'll be happy. And it really seems like these achievements will lead to happiness. And then when we reach these goals, we're happy for a little while. And then once again, we're back in the same shifting moods, the same unpredictable mind states, the same uh, states of, uh, of flux. So when all else fails and we're desperate to create a sense of stability, 
we sometimes will even define ourselves by our failures, our traumas, our disappointments. We take change and losses personally. Why me? And this is one of the causes of unnecessary suffering. It's known as the second arrow in Buddhism. We'll talk about that in a moment. So as all thoughts, feelings, body sensations, perceptions, moods are unstable, prone to change, the Buddha reached the single conclusion that sets Buddhism aside from all other spiritual paths and makes it a truly unique philosophy, psychology, spiritual practice. The Buddha teaches we don't even have a solid identity nor a fixed self. We want to have a sense of I am, Josh is, uh, this, maybe uh, Josh is a intellectual or Josh is a creative person or Josh is a calm person. But over time, any given day, I might not be any of those things. I might have days where I'm not particularly at all. I'm, I definitely have days where I'm not particularly intellectual or I have times where I'm not calm and I have times when I'm not creative. And so all of these self-beliefs or identity stories or ego um, uh, states are transitory. None of them define us. We have, yes, tendencies. Some of us tend to be more optimistic and some of us tend to be more pessimistic. Some of us are very funny. Some of us are generally dead serious. Some of us are intellectual. Some of us are heartfelt. Some of us gravitate towards depression. Others gravitate towards anxiety. But if we look at all of those tendencies closely, they're all changing. And sometimes even the most pessimistic individual can suddenly be optimistic about something and vice versa. So we have no solid identity or fixed sense of self means we're basically left unable to make much sense of our life ourself, our world, meaning always slides behind our, beyond our grasp. And this is another kind of suffering the Buddha called Dukkha Sankara, the frustration of always trying to make sense and label and know what the world is and what we are and what other people are and always having actual experience subvert and undercut and uh, disappoint our beliefs and our views and our opinions. So the impermanence of all experience in life frustrates our need for control, our need for predictability, our need for reliability. And uh, if every experience will pass, and everything we attain through hard work will ultimately not 
uh, solve all of our problems or our issues and will eventually be forgotten. The question is, the great existential question is, why do we bother? Why do we bother amidst the fact that everything we know will change and go away? Everything about ourselves will change and go away. Everything about our world will change. At some point in any self-examined life, we have to reach this point where we acknowledge, wow, I'm just a transient life passing through, and there's every chance that uh, a short term after we pass, we might be forgotten. The world will move on. Other people will come in. And so we have to answer. We have to come up with our own existential response to why do we keep showing up, putting effort in despite the inevitable change. And the Buddha was the first to answer, to my mind, this profound existential dilemma we must all grapple with. He assures us that we can alleviate the needless suffering in life associated with change and in so doing make life worth living and, and actually profoundly meaningful. He doesn't say that we alleviate change. There's nothing we can do about change, but he says we can alleviate the suffering from the fact that things are changing. So, Let's look at that a little closer. In the first arrow teaching, the Buddha notes that pain, painful events in life are inevitable. We all grow old. We all become sick at times. We all die. We all experience losses. And that's inevitable. So is sorrow and sadness at times in our inevitable, universal, painful events occur in life due to impermanence. These are the first arrow pains, and they can be, frankly, excruciating when they first occur, but they become bearable if we don't add the second arrow, which is the sorrow, the shock, the sense of confusion pass. What makes life feel unbearable or overwhelmingly difficult to thrive through is that we cling to people, places, and things with the hope that they can help avoid the inevitable, that we can outrun old age, we can avoid loss. And so we only become miserable and we only become more frustrated when these inevitable events actually occur. Needless suffering comes from seeking stability where stability doesn't exist. It's only in learning to observe instability in a way that is um, non-personal, non-caught up in it, that we can remove ourselves from this suffering. And the Buddha also notes that it's essential that we don't take change and loss personally. We don't turn the experience of um, uh, the losses, the separations in our life as a sense that we have been singled out, that there's something unique uh, 
the unlovable or uh, that we've somehow done life wrong. There is a famous teaching which I love to uh, surmise, the Kisigatami teaching, the famous story of the woman who had a child and she put all of her, she was very poor and put all of her effort into raising the child so that the child could have a happier life than her own. But as it came to pass, the child was bit by a poisonous snake and died. And on top of all the grief she felt, there was this enormous sense of not only denial, but this enormous sense that she had failed and had done something wrong. And she ran about from one place to another, one spiritual teaching to another, pleading with them to tell her what she had done wrong, how she could undo it, how she could bring her child back to life, and so on and so forth. And finally, she was instructed to meet with the Buddha. And the Buddha said, I will hold your child, take care of your child's body. I want you to go down into the town beneath where we're situated right now and bring back three mustard seeds from a house that hasn't known death. So Kisigatami goes down thrilled that the Buddha will um, make all of this loss not real and all of the impermanence that she's experienced not real. She goes down and she asks the first house. And while they're happy to give her the three mustard seeds, they acknowledge that, well, their grandparent had just died the other day. The next house she goes to talks about how an uncle or um, a nephew or a cousin had recently passed. Every house she goes to has known death and loss. And in this practice, Kisigatami is made aware that the loss of her child was not about her. It was about the inevitable processes of life. Nothing is personal. And it's through that letting go of one, craving permanence where there is none, and two, no longer taking change personally, understanding that it is the law, the universal law of all life, that the Buddha notes that we can remove all the unnecessary suffering from life, be with life in a way, as Alan Watts says, the only way to make sense out of change is to plunge into it, move with it, and join the dance. So Nibbana, or enlightenment, is a relief from craving or the release from craving permanence amidst flux. It's a form of awareness. It's not an actual place. It's not anything other than a form of awareness that appreciates each experience without trying to freeze it, without trying to deny its conditionality. It's a contemplative state where we observe each moment how it's different, how it's never to return. And in so doing, we savor and appreciate each moment of life. And there's this great joy or great sense of 
uh, immersion in life when we realize that no moment, no person, no thing is ever going to be the same, is ever going to repeat. So in this way, the moment of realization and the liberation from suffering and the reason we find to show up for life amidst the ongoing march to impermanence is because we every, every day have a practice that reminds ourselves that nothing is a given, that nothing is as reliable as we want. And so we come to accept that everything from our favorite people, places, restaurants, bands are fragile. They can change. They're subject to end. The menu's always changing in life. This doesn't mean we're indifferent when beings pass, when we lose someone, or when we feel the pangs of our body changing, but it means we don't add the second arrow, which is, why is this happening to me? We know this is universal. And in letting go of clinging, the false beliefs we build up about our world and selves fall away. And all that remains is an open, non-judgmental, relaxed appreciation, which is actually none other than awakening. One of the core practices of Buddhism is known as the path of purification, uh, the foundations of what's called Vipassana practice. And in this early teaching, it says that to get to this point of liberation, we have to very often go through a dark night of the soul, states of disenchantment, that existential angst. Why do I bother? If everything is subject to change, if everyone can go away, if people's availability are unreliable, if the things that I rely on are not as constant as I want them be, to be. But beyond this dark night of the soul or this shattering sense of confidence beyond it, there's a place where suddenly we just re-emerge into the world with this sense of, oh wow, this is a situ- This is a moment that ha- that everything in the past has led up to, that has all of history baked into it, and this moment will never repeat itself. And there can be this awe in that this deep sense of wow that we get from when we look at art or when we look at something miraculous in nature, we really see our own life and our own experience for the first time. Knowledge based, as I say, on this clear seeing means we don't get fooled again into clinging onto things or the rituals or daily practices with the idea that they will uh, make us invulnerable to change and loss. Sure, we still go to our daily 
gym or yoga class. We still maybe go to the same place to eat the same lunch. But each time we do it, we observe what's different in each iteration. We see what has changed. And in this is a profound wisdom that the mind doesn't have to become stirred up or agitated. We can simply be with all of our lives and the lives of others as they arrive and as they pass without unnecessary suffering. So we're going to do a little bit of Vipassana practice now, which is the daily practice of becoming aware of impermanence as it arises and passes as it, it's, it, as it articulates itself through all phenomena, including ourself, we're going to find an anchor, which means something to pay attention to, the, to rest our awareness on. For many, it will be the breath. For some, it will be another body sensation, and then we'll allow our attention to stay there until any sensation, internal or external, that's predominant or easy to perceive and easy to observe makes itself known, passes, its, passes through the sensory gating and makes its way to consciousness. And we'll simply sit and observe change as it happens, change, observing it without any desire for it to change in a certain way or to be constant. We simply learn to be with the dance of life without trying to set the tempo. So thanks for listening to that talk. I hope something in there was worth uh, your time. And now what I'd like to invite you to do is to look away from any screens that you happen to be on and just find a very comfortable seated position where you can um, just uh, not have to be distracted by any stimuli that's intrusive, closing our eyes. And allowing our attention to be reeled in from the world around us. Imagine your attention is like a bait at the end of a fishing line and it's been bobbing around in an ocean of and you're reeling it back in to your body. Very often when our daily life, it feels like our conscious awareness is outside and above our heads, outside of our bodies and above our bodies. And in meditation, we bring our attention into our bodies and we lower it or spread it down from behind our eyes. We lower it into our bodies. So throughout your practice, you want to notice when your 
awareness feels like it's returned to that very narrow shelf behind your eyes, between your ears, and you want to, or even even more so if it's your sense of awareness has jumped above your body and outside of it. And we want to bring it back in and down. So we're spreading it into, not just throughout the face and head, but down through the throat. And as we spread it through the head and face and throat, see if we can relax all of the, any tightness and or contraction of muscles there. And as we lower it into the shoulders, just allow the shoulders to drop down and shift a little back, allowing more, releasing any ongoing held tendency to keep the shoulders up, contracted towards the ears. And then we lower it into the chest and take a nice full in-breath into the chest and try to allow as much space for the diaphragm, maybe pulling the arms a little back and then softly breathing out. Lowering the awareness into the abdomen. See if you can bring your awareness as close as you can to the sensations associated with your belly and just see if you can release any tightness, any tendency to hold in your belly. Just allow it to be released. And then continue this practice down through the sit bones and buttocks and thighs and calves all the way down. Just moving your awareness like a light moving through a basement that you haven't been down into for a long time. And as the light shines itself on different sensations to see if you can address any clutter or tightness.
And at some point, see if you can find an anchor for your awareness. This could be the sensation of the breath moving up, the energy of the breath moving up from your belly to your chest on the inhalation, and then back down. You could just keep your awareness on the belly expanding and contracting, or on the chest or the or focus on the sensations of breath moving through the nostrils or the mouth. Or we don't even have to use the breath. We could just find a sensation that is pleasurable and reliable. Reliable, not in the sense of constancy, but at least reliable in the sense that it finds it prov- provides a good foundation for us to rest attention. So sometimes a pleasant sensation, maybe in the palms of the hand or the sensations of the eyes. And to see if you can find some area in your body to rest. And for a little while, just stay with it. Stay with that anchor. Just try to relax this area, soften around it so it becomes a pleasant foundation for your practice.
if you found a place that's a pleasant sensation or some sensation to provide an ongoing anchor for your practice, place to rest your attention, then the next part of Vipassana practice is simply to wait until some sensation or stimuli, whether it's from your body itself or from feelings responding to the world around you, shifts of mental energy from tired to alert to anxious to relaxed or external sensations like sounds or around us or contact sensations with the chair we're sitting on, air flowing through the room, the flickering lights behind eyelids, whatever seeks your attention Bring your attention to it and keep your attention on it long enough that you can observe how this experience is not solid or predictable. It's actually an ongoing process, changing, evolving, shifting. Even the breath never repeats itself. The sounds around us never do. Body sensations and body states and mental states are always shifting. This is a practice where we simply note change without any resistance, without any expectation, we just learn to be with and be okay with flux, shifting, moving, tightening and relaxing. All of it dancing with the tune of life. You can stay with any sensation or object of awareness as long as you need to observe experience, how it's perpetually morphing. And then when you've seen enough, return to your anchor and wait for the next 
body sensation or feeling or sound or thought even to arise. Observe whatever part of your experience just in terms of watching for change. Mm -hmm. 